Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, March 30th, and I'm your host of this consumer goods-focused episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined once again by Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma, and we're going to be taking a member's question and talking about a business that I had seen growing up in Texas but never considered as a public company, Boot Barn. Asit, how are you doing? Emily, I am doing well, and I'm glad that we have boots on the ground for this episode today. <laughs> I love that. (laughs) I try. I don't always make it there, but I try. So the idea for this episode actually came from a listener email. Um, A member, I should say listener, named Austin emailed us and said, Hi, my name's Austin. I'm 24. And my question is about Boot Barn. I think it's a potential under-the-radar growth stock. In their recent investor presentation, they reported net sales CAGR of 20%. They added 15 new stores during 2020, up from 251 to 266 in December 2020. On a recent ski trip, I ran into a Boot Barn employee who told me they're opening eight new stores every six months, and I looked at their earnings report and, as mentioned above, it checks out. She told me that as, that Boot Barn has a competitive moat from e-commerce brands because since Boots are notoriously hard to find the right fit for and are generally pretty expensive. People like to come into the store and try them on for themselves. She said the company culture is great and really enjoys working there. Have you guys looked at Boot Barn? Austin. Well, Austin, uh, no, we hadn't (laughs) until this episode, but thank you for giving us this idea. I'm really excited to talk about a lot of the things you mentioned. Yeah, for sure. Any chance to talk about retail? And there are so many interesting companies that sort of fly under the radar screen in this industry. Emily, many of them you don't want to get involved with, (laughs) given all the change and transformation in retail with the growth of e-commerce and uh, just the slow, unseemly death that so many mall-based brands have, have died, have experienced over the past few years. But but this one, I think, is is in much better shape. Yeah, I really love this question in particular because part of my other work here at The Fool is working on a service called TrendSpotter. And one of the trends that I, alongside Seth Jason and Ari Hughes, analyze is something we call niche e-commerce or specialty e-commerce. And it's trying to root out these brands that have a really cult-like and loyal following that somehow persist against the giants that are Walmart's Target Amazons of the world. And well, the e-commerce aspect of Boot Barn, as, as Austin mentioned, is much smaller in comparison to its retail footprint. I still think that this kind of gets at an interesting niche of the market that maybe gives it a little bit more staying power than I initially assumed having seen and been to, say, a Boot Barn, at least growing up in Texas. Yeah, Emily, I really uh, have been looking for companies of this type of ilk. I thought I found one a few years ago in a company called The Buckle which is another specialty small retailer with a physical store presence and an e-commerce arm. They sell jeans, like high-end price point jeans, but just didn't have enough to persuade me uh, just to get interested and and maybe pull the trigger. But I, I am interested in Boot Barn because it distinguishes itself from so many other companies that we've looked at. Now, we'll get into this. It's got its its drawbacks as well, 
But Austin, thank you for this idea. It's, this is going to be a fun uh, breakdown here. I actually love that you mentioned Buckle, or I guess the company's name is The Buckle, as uh, another type of company that you've looked at, because Buckle is actually one of the businesses that management outlines as an example of a competitor or a, a comparable business in their proxy form. So if you're familiar with businesses like, I think they also have Lands End, Zoomies, the Tile Shop, uh, this is a type of business that we're thinking about, at least from the perspective of management. But Boot Barn's different, because it is, in fact, the largest retail retail chain of specialty stores aimed at offering Western footwear, aka boots, apparel, and accessories in the United States. So this is this is a special one. <laughs> For sure. And um, Emily, one more thing before we really jump in here. I was just curious, do you know of any other brand name boot retailer? Or did you know before you maybe read through uh, in, in preparation for this episode? No. And that was one of the really interesting kind of key takeaways that I was going to pull from this episode was that other than Boot Barn, I do not know where people go to buy boots, um, especially when we're talking about boots, we're talking about, you know, like like Western inspired boots. So I'm trying to think like, you know, cowboys and, and out west. These are the sorts of things we're talking about, not necessarily like steel-toed work boots. Uh, but that's the only place that came to mind. And Boot Barn did come to mind because again, I grew up in an area that had a, I, I won't say a lot of boot barns, but if you were going to buy boots, you, you did go to Boot Barn. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a pretty rural place, not so rural anymore, but about 30 miles east of Raleigh, North Carolina, where I'm based now. And I hadn't heard of Boot Barn at all. We had small independent shops. In fact, there's still one between Raleigh and the town I grew up in Smithfield, about halfway. It's on Highway 70 for those of you who live in North Carolina. Um, and that is a really cool, big Western wear shop, but I think it's maybe one location. Um, and at least in this part of the country, now we're not horse country, Emily, like it seems like when I imagine Texas, like I know you have these huge cities like Houston and Dallas, but a lot of Texas seems to me um, to be quite rural and a great demand for stores like this. So I could see you'd have multiple locations. I did look up and there is a boot barn sort of near me. It's about um, an hour away in a town called Burlington. So um, now I know where to go if, if I want to get a pair of new boots. It's been years since I bought a pair of boots, but uh, I have a place now I can s stop in. I don't want to make this too anecdotal, but uh, I will say I'm maybe not the best person to ask about boots. I have a huge feet for a woman. I have size 10, 10 and a half feet. So if I put a pair of boots on, I mean, I look like Bigfoot walking around the city with boots. So I, I have never actually owned a pair of boots. But Boot Barn, to your point, does have a lot of local smaller competitors. So I apologize if I offended any uh, local loyalists who grew up in Texas who are now saying, come on, Emily, there's a ton of local mom and pop shops. You don't go to Boot Barn. Uh, but for me personally, Boot Barn was the one that came to mind. <laughs> Funny. Well, with that, let's get into the business a little bit. Uh, I, I did mention that it's mainly known for boots, and we spent a lot of the ch beginning of the show talking about its boot business, and that's for good reason. Boots make up over half of the business's total revenue. Uh, Western-inspired apparel makes up 
our remaining like 35% or so, and accessories making up the, the rest. So really, Boot Barn has its name right? Boot Barn is, is what's really driving the majority of its revenue. But they do have a number of e-commerce operations as well. So you may be familiar with Shepler's, uh, the brand. It's a brand that Boot Barn actually acquired, I believe, back in 2015. It was their biggest acquisition. Um, that's also Western Wear-inspired apparel and footwear. So they have some acquisitions beyond just the Boot Barn name that investors may be familiar with. Yeah. And for this company, they are a really practiced acquirer. They've been around since 1978. And Emily, I know you had pointed out in our prep that the company seems to hit a regular cadence of acquisitions, but they're small. Uh, most of their acquisitions outside of Shelpers in recent years have been in the neighborhood of $2 million to $4 million. So they're picking up these smaller uh, companies, independently owned Western wear shops or boot shops, and they have a great... Uh, practice in just integrating them into their system. Reminds me a little bit of a company called Unifirst, which specializes in workwear rental. They also are an acquirer of mom and pop businesses that they then pull into their system. So a, a really nice way to grow a good mix of organic growth and acquired growth. And before we get into a lot of Austin's really good points about store growth, just looking at what the business has today, uh, if you look at their stores, they're about the size of a drugstore. So around 10,000 square feet of selling space gives you an idea about how big the store is. And Boot Barn has over 250 stores in 35 states across the U.S. But uh, the largest markets in terms of total stores and total sales are by far in Texas, California, and Arizona. So they are pretty concentrated with where they're, they're located today. Yeah, they are definitely uh, sort of a formulaic type of company in that they know their sweet spot in retail. Although this um, is so interesting, you mentioned this expansion that they're working on, Emily. Their latest stores are actually 8,000 to 12,000 feet in total. So I guess the selling space is going to be a little bit smaller per store. Um, this is their prototype model going forward. And I think that this follows a trend we've seen in other retail where companies are understanding to have this brick and mortar uh, presentation in an omni-channel business, you have to really be efficient with this space, as efficient as you can, because you're competing with all types of uh, companies, especially in a fragmented industry like this, many of them selling just purely online. So I like that management is trying to tinker a little bit with that average store size. Management has also called out opportunities for growth beyond just reformatting their stores. One of the things that surprised me was in fiscal 2020, and, and that's their fiscal year before COVID hit. So it ended right in March 2020. So most of the numbers I'll be talking about or will be talking about today do come from pre-pandemic to kind of normalize things a bit. Um, but one of the things that surprised me the most was that 65% of all sales were men's merchandise. I don't know what I expected from Boot Barn. <laughs> I guess putting a little bit of a brain effort behind it, I should have been able to assume that demand for boots, especially for occupations that require boots, would be higher for men's. But 
I saw retail store and I thought women's, but was also interesting because CEO Jim Conroy had mentioned in an interview last January that foot traffic to their stores was actually around 50%, if not a little bit higher, skewed towards women's. So that was an interesting opportunity for them as well. They've been historically so focused on the men's opportunity for boots that maybe there's an opportunity to even just expand its addressable market by just changing the merchandise in the store without changing the store layout. I think there's a huge uh, opportunity for that. And I noticed on their website that they are seem to be marketing more actively towards uh, women now. So they have a little bit of fashion on their site. And it's a pretty savvy site, by the way. You might not uh, innately associate it with a Western wear brand, but it looks to me uh, more like a contemporary, any kind of contemporary e-commerce retailer, just from, from the website. And that, you know, it's, it's interesting, Emily. First, I, I want to call you out on associating higher retail sales with, with women, but I think <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> but this idea of um, marketing to women is a strong one. Women in the, the states that the company is in, so 35 states you mentioned, a lot of them in the Midwest, out West, and in the South, they're huge purchasers, um, not just of boots, but of Western type fashion. And of course, if you've been into a boot barn and you're familiar with, with boots, they've got a good divide between what are called just Western wear or Western boots. So think cowboy boots and work boots. I think that uh, women have been increasing their share of the overall boot market in recent years. Uh, quite a lot of fashion there to be tapped into. So I, I agree with you that uh, CEO Jim Conroy is, is onto something there. And one last thing before we talk a bit more about what Austin was getting at with the growth opportunities. I don't want to, you know, fly by that. But one of the things I did think was interesting and I didn't expect when going through Boot Barn's last annual report was private label merchandise. Boot Barn actually has been selling private label brands in their stores, not just partnering with third parties. And in the last fiscal year, private label brands made up over 20% of total revenue. That's good because that's higher margin sales for Boot Barn. But it did get me thinking that this might expose them to some additional risk that other retailers don't face. Because Boot Barn has so many partnerships with really well-known Western-style brands, it's important for them to retain those relationships. And if they're coming out and launching their own private label brands that bigger brands, bigger suppliers perceive as competitive, maybe those suppliers won't be willing to work with Boot Barn in the future if their private label brands start eating into those sales, especially as Boot Barn continues to expand their store count. It's astute to point out that risk. I mean, in recent years, we've seen all types of big retailers. I'm thinking about Dick's Sporting Goods, Kohl's. Um, so many have started their own private labels and they're benefiting from that. But when you're a really big national chain selling in the billions and billions of years, then you've got a little bit of cloud of your own. And you can develop this long-term frenemy relationship with the brand names that you carry in your store. Not so much for a smaller retailer. I think it's a fine line that they walk. And I'm, I'm glad you call that out. Uh, if they can get this mix just right, though, that should be net positive to those margins. 
And when we think about how their stores could expand, as Austin mentioned, Boot Barn's strategy for growth just comes from, from obviously retaining a certain level of same-store sales growth, but also just fundamentally expanding their stores. And management believes that there is a long-term opportunity to double their store count. They have just over 250-ish, 260 to over 500 stores just in the United States alone. And management actually has what they kind of tout as this proprietary model. I'm not sure how much proprietary data really goes into it, but they have a model that sees them expanding their store base by around 10% every year. And clearly 2020 was a bit of a weird year where they didn't hit those numbers. And I'm totally willing to give management a pass on that. And we'll talk more about how uh, COVID has more greatly impacted this business than others. But that's some pretty aggressive expansion numbers, especially when you consider the just Demand for Western wear may not be as great in, say, Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, just throwing out some Northeast states in comparison to that that, that they're experiencing in Arizona. I'm I'm laughing. So if you're listening to the podcast, you you can't see me, but our our live viewers are seeing me laugh because, uh, yes, it's a it's a lifestyle sort of uh, branding, isn't it, Emily? The company cited in its recent quarterly reports that the absence of rodeos and country music concerts has you know, been sort of a headwind against the business. And uh, there aren't a ton of rodeos in those upper northeast states. Nevertheless, there's, I think there's some demand for boots there. But, you know, Emily, this so caught my attention. Um, one of the things I didn't like about Buckle or, or the Buckle is that they were managing the business well, transitioning out of the worst malls that they were in, but didn't really have a good way to increase their store base. This company reminds me of some other companies that I've become very fond of. I'm thinking about Dollar General. I'm talking about Sleep Number Corporation. We've talked about both of these on Industry Focus, but if you can get a dependable expansion of your square footage every year, and you can estimate that the selling square footage will go along with with the store units, if you can expand that by 10% and then you can layer on 5 or 6 or 6.5% of same store sales, that suddenly looks like a really fast annual growth rate and it's attention catching. One of the things that really uh, slowed me down as I was reading through this is this formula. Dollar General has something very similar. They get up, if you remember, to about 10 to 11% in, in their equation. So, Austin, you're, you're on to something there. I really liked that about this company. And that's what the company's historically been doing in terms of same-store sales growth. If you go back to, to pre-COVID times, they were growing around 5% in terms of same-store sales. There was a period where they grew 10%, so pretty outstanding. But that has been very lumpy over time. And I, I can't figure out exactly why it's been so dramatically lumpy as it has been, but I do think it maybe has to do with the Boot Barn market. Uh, Boot Barn, as you mentioned, is driven a lot of their sales through events. They sponsor rodeos, uh, themes, these sorts of events and parties, uh, concerts, country music attractions, all of these things can drive demand for, for Boot Barn's products. And maybe there's just been periods historically where that's been higher than others. Certainly 2020, none of those things were happening, at least not on any large scale, which did impact this business, although admittedly not as much as I thought it could do. But 
presuming that they come back to this historical norm of 4 to 5% on top of their 10% a year uh, uh, increase in the number of store counts, pretty outstanding. For sure. You know, I wonder if some of that lumpiness is due to disposable income. The boots are a big driver of the business. And for those of you who uh, invest in boots, and I call it an investment, they're not cheap. You know, a beginning pair of good leather boots can run you a couple hundred bucks. Boot Barn has boots on its website that are running for five and six hundred dollars. If you go to their section called exotics, which is not not pairs that I would buy, both because they're expensive and also because uh, they're using some some animal hides like ostrich. Nonetheless, when disposable incomes are rising in a strong economy, I can see them hitting that maybe ten uh, percent rhythm of same store sales. And then when when the economy is hitting a trough people are pulling back that disposable income component. Maybe at that point, you're going to skip your Western boots and maybe just buy a pair of, of uh, work boots if, if you need a pair. So that could have something to do with it. But I like that when you average this out, you're right, Emily, they're, they're hitting at least you know 5 to 6 7% uh, each year. It's true what you say about the disposable income, and maybe that's the aspect that I'm missing. But I'm still surprised when looking at the performance of the business over the past year, even if everybody was spending their stimulus checks on ostrich boots. Uh, Boot Barn has done a pretty impressive job because 85% of their sales pre-COVID were happening in store. And this goes back to what Austin mentioned about that employee saying that people like to try on boots and see them on them before they make this multi-hundred dollar investment. And it would come to mind for investors that when this pandemic happens, people aren't going out, they're not visiting in stores. So it would impact this business pretty substantially. And it did, but not nearly to the level that I would have presumed. Even looking at the total growth they experienced over 2020, um, and that's calendar year 2020, so not fiscal year 2020. But in terms of total growth, over the last 12 months, revenue has only fallen 3% year over year, which is, in my opinion, really not bad. That was surprising. And I think part of it may be the phenomenon of people staying home and just deciding that um, they they weren't going to spend on experiences and trips. So maybe people, you know, their e-commerce channel rose in volume. And so maybe there was some offset there. I think the company ascribes it to its loyal customer base and its ability to uh, offer brands and styles on its website that are appealing in, in the market. So there's some of that as well. But it I think it does speak to also a replenishment cycle. And remember, it's not just boots, it's uh, belts. Uh, it is some Western wear. So they are, you know, in some part also a fashion store as well. And one of the competitive advantages that Boot Barn Management lay out in their 10K is their employees. And any brand-based business always says, our employees, our staff are what makes us special. It's really easy to say these things and harder to back it up. But it's wonderful that I that Austin found an employee who is such a uh, prominent you know, spokesperson 
for the Boot Barn brand because Boot Barn needs to hire people who are enthusiasts of the Western lifestyle, who love wearing Boot Barn products because that's going to make their loyal customers come back. It's going to make the Boot Barn experience different than that of even a local mom and pop shop. So that's the sort of thing that's going to set this business apart over time. Yeah. And Emily, again, you know, reminding me of attributes I like in other companies. One of the things that I love about Sleep Number is that they hire people who are going to become experts and who can sell those expensive mattresses over the phone and know every last detail. And similarly, Boot Barn tends to hire people who know a lot about the lifestyle, the materials, uh, how the boots are made, how the other clothes are stitched together. So they've got, you know, as you say, sort of these advocates as uh, people who are selling the product. And that can really help, not, not just backed by a very decent culture, which this seems to have, but the knowledge base in people who are on the floor. Since it is a model where people are walking in, they're going to try in a pair of boots, a few pairs, um, 50% of that store traffic. Okay, if men make up the, most of the sales, the other half of that store traffic is going to be a significant uh, other coming in and also asking questions. So I, I think employees can make the difference. You're right. I mean, I've read so many annual reports in my life that tout the importance of employees. Our people are our most important asset. (laughs) Our people make the sales, but so much of it can be just boilerplate stuffing in an annual report. This seems to be a little different. And it's showing up in terms of its financial performance as well. Uh, The average net sales per store in fiscal 2020 was over two and a half million. And that's pretty impressive when you consider that the average net cash investment it takes just to open a boot barn store is $800,000. That results in an average payback period of around three years for each store opened. Well, that's not you know, immediate. You're you're not making your money back the way you would if you open up, say, a Chick-fil-A in a really popular downtown location. I'm going off personal experience there. The lines are always incredibly crazy. But that is pretty good for a Western wear-inspired apparel brand. And it does get at what management strategy is, is of opening stores. I would expect for their cash flow. So when you look at the operating cash flow, it's probably going to be pulled down more than maybe some investors expect over the next few years because of how aggressively management's going to be investing capital into opening these stores. But if the stores that they open continue this same payback period of around three years, that could really mean great things for Boot Barn longer term. Absolutely. And and we should point out that this has been traditionally since the company was founded, self-funded growth. So the company is generating pretty strong cash flow. It's investing in new inventory, in new stores. Uh, doesn't have a ton of leverage on its balance sheet. It, it does have uh, some goodwill on its books because it acquires so many companies. But this isn't uh, an enterprise that is going out and trying to issue a lot of debt so it can expand quickly. It's got this set cadence. They're very smart about the way they manage their inventory, which can really help you grow. One of the least understood and most problematic uh, issues with store expansion, if you if you have inventory, is, is how to put that inventory in new stores, how much to allocate to that, and, and how will you fund it. I like that Boot Barn has sort of built these automatic replenishment levels in their stores. So 
when you look at their total inventory, they explain this in their annual report, about 70% of it is on auto replenishment. That means once you get to a certain level of inventory, an automatic uh, order comes in to replace that. Now, whether that means that someone is filling out a manual ticket or uh, this is actually fully automated, I don't know. But the point is that they've established order points over time. Really, really hard to do in a fashion business when to reorder key merchandise. So all these things come together in this picture of a company that has been self-funding its growth and is very good at uh, spotting out ideal leases. Um, And we should mention their typical store is either freestanding or in a strip mall. They're really not in traditional malls. And they tend to cluster in areas where <laughs> there's high interest in, in this type of merchandise. So it takes a lot of elements to be able to expand successfully like this. And I, I like what I see in how astute management is in, as you said, Emily, being able to provide a three-year payback period on an $800,000 cash investment. I will say I had to dock points a little bit for merchandising, not because the company has historically done it poorly in the past. Uh, they've, I think they've actually done a pretty impressive job. And I tend to be overly skeptical of companies that have to worry about merchandising just because of how we've seen poor merchandising take away from a lot of the legacy retail businesses that we end up talking about on this consumer goods focused show. But one of the weird things I did note in their annual report were some disclosures regarding related party transactions. Whenever I see a business that depends on merchandising, I like to look at who their chief merchandising officer is and see, okay, do they have the chops to to really be smart about how they manage inventory? And in this case, the husband of Boot Barn's chief merchandising officer is an independent sales representative for a collection of boot companies. And uh, Boot Barn essentially gets all of their supplies or a significant amount of of their merchandise from the suppliers that's co-owned by the chief merchandiser and the chief merchandiser's husband. And we don't have a great sense. I mean, presumably the supplies that they're buying from, from this outlet is high quality enough and in demand enough to sell through. It has historically. But I just don't like it when the chief merchandiser has a vested financial interest in selling a certain type of merchandise as opposed to going out and finding the merchandise that they believe has the best sell-through potential. That's a little bit of a conflict of interest to me that I did kind of want to call out. No, it's a great one to call out. And, And these types of things... Uh, you see from time to time from companies that have evolved from a smaller base, they get disclosed in the company audits. Uh, sometimes they don't get disclosed and then, then there's a really bad conflict of interest and, and sometimes there can be fraud. I'm never quite comfortable with those types of situations either because it means someone may be getting, you know, as you point out, a, a sweet deal and maybe pricing isn't as competitive as it could be. Um, nonetheless, you know uh, they've put it out there in their financial statements. It's passed muster with the auditors, but I do think that's a risk, Emily. Something to watch over as they, you know, continue to grow in scale. And I, I will say it's easy for me sitting here behind my computer, you know, nitpicking over annual reports to to call out these when I see them. And uh, 
beyond that disclosure, which the company did make, I will say in terms of the merchandise and that they've had historically, there's there's nothing to imply, historically speaking, that they've made bad merchandising decisions. So it's it's fun for me. I enjoy having that critical eye behind the safety of the anonymity of of the internet here. Uh, but I, I still did want to call it out. <laughs> and one of the other things that stood out to me, and um, this is also, I'd probably say a risk. I think it depends on your perspective of this industry, I will say, was how much of Boot Barn's market opportunity depends on on the oil and gas industry in particular. Demand for things like safety toe boots, a flame-resistant and high visibility clothing, they actually come from various industrial and outdoor occupations, especially in key markets like Texas. A lot of the people coming over and, and buying these products work in the oil and gas industry. And the company actually notes that a global slowdown in the demand for oil does have a material impact on their sales. That was not a connection I would have made independently. And I guess if you're thinking about Boot Barn as a really long-term investment, I would have to wonder about the lasting demand for for not that all all of these occupations are going away, but I do wonder if the demand for those sorts of items are going to be as high as they have historically been. It's a good point. And the other part of that equation is that they're going up against bigger competitors. I mentioned Unifirst earlier. Uh, they rent the same kind of specialty uh, garments just to this industry. So you're competing with two things. One is the prevalence of some big, well-heeled competitors who will offer these up for rent versus trying to persuade someone to buy them and then replenish them that way. But also the fact that it's not their core area, yet it seems to make up just enough of that revenue to call it out as a risk. So you could see like if this goes away over time, they're going to have to replace that with something else. Now, this could be opportunity because the workwear industry is uh, it's going to be, I think, ripe for expansion. Unifirst, Cintas is another example. Uh, these companies have been plowing this field for, for years. It's got great recurring revenue, and it could be a nice lateral type of expansion for Boot Barn. But I think they would have to spend some money and invest in uh, understanding lateral industries, adjacent industries. There's so many workwear possibilities if that's something they want to uh, get into outside of their core business. Just being concentrated in, in this one industry, yeah, I guess it makes sense, Emily, because you know they've got such a big presence, as you mentioned, in Texas and uh, some of the southern states that are big in oil drilling. You can see how this sort of organically probably came about over the years. But it's interesting, perhaps, to pursue further as an expansion revenue stream for them. That's interesting. I, I didn't think about that as an opportunity. I think I had solely considered it a risk in my mind. And uh, before we do get off to to what I would consider maybe my biggest risk here, I'm kind of curious how you think about competition. At the beginning of the show, you mentioned you had some experience with these mom and pop shops and management does say that in the majority of their markets, their number one competitor only has one or two locations. So there really isn't a global competitor to Boot Barn. Do you think that's a good thing or do you think that's a risk? I you know, I almost think it's a risk simply because, and again, we're going partially on industry knowledge, partially on anecdotal evidence, but I'm sure many of our viewers have had this experience. The reason that there are only one or two uh, Western type 
competitors in a certain town or or even city is because the market is just not that big. And if you've got a competitor who's been around and has twelve to fifteen thousand square feet worth of well-stocked space, like this uh, small uh, company that that I was talking about at the beginning of the show or referring to, which is a company midway between where I live now and where I grew up in a rural area, it, it's sort of hard to knock them from that that perch. And it's almost easier if there are two stores given their run rate to acquire them for a million bucks or two million bucks, which is what uh, Boot Barn has been doing. It's a fragmented industry that doesn't really lend itself that well to consolidation. You can imagine um, they have a talent at this, but at the end of the day, how big is this market? I will say that you know we should point out demographic trends have been good for this business, and I don't remember specifically seeing this uh, in their latest annual report, but for those of you who are even glancingly familiar with this industry, the influx of the Hispanic demographic into the southern states, legal immigration um, and and illegal immigration, if you will, but just the the influx of uh, Hispanics who come in many instances from very small countries. I'm thinking of the Honduras, Guatemala, which I've visited, where that type of wear is um, almost a, a fashion statement. That's actually a trend in the company's favor. And I note that on their website, they are carrying some styles that appeal to um, a Central American market. They have some really nice jackets with Mexican flag aimed at women, Emily. <laughs> so they're, they're getting that <laughs> sort of two in one. So, yeah, I, you know, this is one thing. For me, it's going to be more of a case of watching Boot Barn just smartly follow this self-funded plan of expansion than thinking they could ever become just truly dominant in this industry. Uh, it's just too fragmented. What, what are your thoughts on that? One of the things I didn't like was that they didn't explicitly draw out a market opportunity uh, in their annual report. I like it when businesses quantify. At a minimum, it provides me some sort of starting level for evaluating how management sees their total addressable market. But the fact that uh, Boot Barn really only briefly mentions their market opportunity, and it's really within the context of the broader apparel and footwear industry, and maybe a bit of agriculture, oil and gas, and manufacturing industry aspects, um, it's interesting that they didn't actually call out any of the changing demographic trends as a potential tailwind, because um, as I'm laughing here, looking at a comment, somebody has said, cowboy stuff is so 1800s. <laughs> that That's exactly where my mind went, was beyond somebody who would need this sort of, of items for a job, who is their target customer? And I think you maybe are getting at it what could be an increasingly growing target customer for this business. And the fact that management hasn't talked about it at all makes me wonder if they're even interested in trying to grab that market, or at least if they are in their merchandising strategy, they're not talking about it in their 10K. So I wish they had quantified it a little bit more, but it is interesting you mentioned that because that's not where my mind went initially. And now I'm starting to understand um, who's going to this boot barn on a recurring basis in a better sense. For sure. I will say, um, I want to pass it off to you for your final thoughts about the stock. If you're interested, if you'd be a buyer of Boot Barn at some point in the near future, but I'll give my thoughts before passing it off to you because I think I've I think I've made mine clear. I'm not a big fan of 
boot barn. I don't think it's a bad business. I certainly don't. But I do wonder about some of their private higher end competitors, those local mom and pop shops that do have loyal followings. And whenever I have these questions, especially about consumer brands and retail brands, I like to ask myself David Gardner's snap test, which is if you snap your fingers and make this company, this brand, this business disappear, would anybody notice? (laughs) And while I am sure I very uh, I've upset some listeners very deeply by making this statement, so maybe I'm horribly wrong, I do have to wonder if I snap my fingers right now and make Boot Barn disappear, if anybody is really put out that much. Um, and for that reason, I'm not really sure if I'm super interested. It's not a bad business. I should really be knocking on wood because, of course, Boot Barn has crushed the market over the past three, three to five years, I believe. But moving forward, I just, I truly wonder about their addressable market and, and competition. Yeah. And this has really so many characteristics that make you want to like it. I will say, um, I wish I had found the boot barn earlier when I was looking at the buckle a couple of years ago, because maybe at that point I would have bought in. I note that today it's trading at around 38 times its forward earnings. So without a technology piece, something persuasive, and it doesn't have to be high tech. Uh, let me just give an example. One that we love to uh, lash ourselves over, Yeti <laughs> was very savvy in using Instagram when it was first growing. And to me, that's almost like a, it's, you can't call it a text uh, stack. But in the um, use of technology, you can see how they leveraged it to move their sales forward. Boot Barn doesn't have anything like this in their um, structure, nor do they have a true tech element that they can leverage to, to make the company worth a 38 times forward earnings multiple. What it looks like now is people are discovering how great it is, how great the forward growth is. And um, it is, I think, persuasive for some who know this market really well. I certainly place it much more highly than many other companies I've looked at. Now, do I prefer this to some of the companies that I've mentioned, like a Dollar General, which has invested so much technology in its supply chain um, and is so great at merchandising, or Sleep Number, which has its own data that it is manipulating uh, internally and using to design new products. Yeah, I don't like it quite as much, but at the same time, let's say that uh, the market really took a plunge and I don't know, this this multiple went down to something more reasonable, like 20 times forward earnings. Would, would I take a nibble? Maybe. You know? It'll definitely be one for the watch list. Um, and it's definitely going to be one that I'm probably going to get some angry emails over from <laughs> the boot enthusiasts. <laughs> well, we have to give them their due. I mean, they, they certainly do... Um, carry the banner in terms of utility and fashion Certainly. in this world. And, and a special thanks to Austin for emailing us uh, with his experiences and his thoughts about Boot Barn, giving us some wonderful content to talk about on today's show. So for that, I appreciate it. And as always, Austin, thank you so much for joining. Absolutely, Emily. Lots of fun as always. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, feel free to shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. 
Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and fool on. Mm-hmm.